Greetings, errants, glitches, breakaways, thought criminals, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever simulacrum we find ourselves navigating at the moment. You are about to set sail on another free first-hour episode of The Melt. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For a measly five dead presidents per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just click the Patreon or Locals link in the episode notes below to create the timeline that will set it all in motion. It's suspiciously simple, altogether painless, and just might inspire feelings of bliss and or lingering euphoria. So, without further ado, let the conversations begin! Hello, my name is Chris Snipes, and you are listening to The Melt. What we refer to as reality is inevitably a subjective experience taken in through our five senses and ideally assembled into something cohesive by our cognitive faculties. What we end up with can vary greatly from person to person depending upon the context of their past experiences and their current relationship to them, their imaginational sophistication and their current access to it, their degree of presence at any given time, and their relationship to subjectivity itself. Awareness and consciousness play a huge role in what we call reality because observation plays a big part in what is being observed. The degree to which one is aware and conscious directly affects the quality of what is being observed, giving reality a subjectivity to it that materialist science doesn't always willingly recognize. It can be destabilizing for many people to realize that they have a much more participatory role in the creation of their day-to-day reality than they have been led to believe. Even if we exist in a simulation, as many scientists, skeptics, philosophers, and members of the truth community have posited, our avatars could still very well be accruing karmic repercussions as if they were inhabited with our souls. So from that angle, our actions and intentions still count, even if they are orchestrated from a distance. Today's guest, author and student of physics and electrical engineering Tom Montauk, joins me to talk about these sorts of things and much, much more. I start off the conversation by asking Tom what it was that set up the trajectory for him to be on the path that he is now. 
Yeah, so I've been a truth seeker all my life, and most of it stemmed from having various paranormal experiences when I was a baby in Germany and growing up. Um, so as a as a kid, I had numerous ghost and alien encounters. So I would cons I would have to be considered an alien abductee, but it's not really what defines me. It's more what got me interested in these fringe subjects to begin with. Um, and so my dad, he was an electrical engineer, uh, and so he he taught me so much science topics as a kid, and it got me really curious about how the world worked. And so when I was confronted with this weird, ineffable mystery of what these beings were that were taking me like every couple weeks, um, it got me curious to figure out what's going on with reality. So when I was 12 or 13, I got a library card and I read all the UFO books, all the metaphysical books, and really started formulating a theory about what's really going on. Uh, so I went to college for physics and electrical engineering. Because uh, when I was reading all these UFO books, I was trying to figure out how does their propulsion system work? Like this weird, it's almost like they were operating by a different law of physics than what we know. And so I wanted to get there one day, maybe apply it and uh, use it for the good of humanity. You know, like free energy, anti-gravity propulsion, things like that. You know, miraculous healing uh, technologies. And so uh, after college, I... I really, really, really started digging into this and started networking with many people. So over the years, I've networked with about 15,000 people wow. uh, over the past 20 years. Uh, one to 2,000 of them were themselves experiencers of either alien phenomena or the paranormal phenomena. Interesting. And so because I, I gathered all these different dots, um, the picture started to coalesce about what could be going on. Uh, and so over the years, I've just simply refined it more and more, you know, doing more research, more uh, experiments and really hearing from a lot of bright individuals who shared with me the research and their experiences. Uh, and so that's what kind of got me to this point. Well, right around 2002, 2003, actually, yeah, it was around 2003, uh, I had the, the privilege of being in contact with uh, a secret society person, not like not Illuminati, not Freemasonry, more like Rosicrucianism. And he told me certain things. We, we weren't really in contact too long. But he told me certain things which, after our brief contact ended, I decided to look into. And I discovered the book Hamlet's Mill, which is an interesting book. Uh, it's, it's, it's a book about mythology, and specifically Indo-European mythology, and how in this book, Hamlet's Mill, uh, the basic concept is that the ancient, uh, the ancient people, they realized that the heavens were changing over time in strange ways. Uh, and they figured out that it had to do with the wobbling of the Earth's axis, the precession of the equinoxes. And so they encoded it into myth, um, myths generally having to do with the axis of the world becoming unhinged. Uh, you know, so that sort of got me looking into that path. And over time, after I looked into alchemy, hermeticism, Gnosticism, Christianity, uh, quantum physics, which I already knew from college, everything started to coalesce. And so... Right around 2012 is when I put out uh, my Gnosis articles, which, you know, were a work in progress, and I worked on it over the past um, 10 years since that point. And uh, nowadays, it's this book right here, Gnosis. It finally came out in a book. I sent you a copy. Yes. There it is. Thank you so much. Yeah, so it's a really fascinating uh, meta conspiracy theory about what this reality truly is. So I'm, I'm really glad that I could send you a copy and have you take a look at yeah, it. Yeah, it's an excellent, excellent book. There's so much there, so dense, and it draws in so many different things, too. It's really fascinating. What, uh, backtracking, <clears throat> excuse me, just a little bit, what were the, what were the nature of your abduction experiences? Were they, were they positive or negative? Were they something that, you know, really 
concerned you or were they, I'll let you tell me. Yeah, well, the very first memory that I had was being in my crib at night. I was maybe six to seven months old. Actually, I was around seven or eight months old. Uh, and I was looking up at the spinning mobile, spinning above me, uh, with a little light shining on it. And all of a sudden, this creepy gray alien face would peer in over the side of the crib Whoa. and look down at me. Jeez. And that freaked, that freaked me out. I mean, that, <laughs> that's like a kid's worst nightmare. No you know, shit. it's like worse than a monster under the bed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, and so I would scream, Geist, at the top of my lungs, and my parents would come running in. Uh, you know, and they wouldn't find anything, but this happened quite a number of times. So that, that was my introduction to the world. You know, it's wow. like, welcome to earth. Here's an alien <laughs> looking over your crib. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So did, yeah, that was my first one. Was it malevolent or was just, I mean, I'm sure the nature of just that looking over your crib, no matter what its intentions were, were disturbing to you. It was disturbing. Yeah, it definitely was. And in the subsequent years, I would have the more classic type of abductions where, you know, I'd be in my mom's bedroom and they would come in through the door and come for me and I'd try to hide either under the bed or in the corner. Uh, funny funny enough, though, um, at the time, my parents had a bed where you could flip up the front end. It was kind of spring-loaded, so you can kind of easily lift it up and there's a compartment underneath for pillows and blankets and such. And so I would jump in there as fast as I could and kind of close it behind me and, and, and peek out through the gap and I could see the gray, the gray aliens like walking back and forth in front of the bed confused about how to get me out. Wow. And this went on for several minutes. But then after that, all of a sudden, I heard someone else come in. It sounded like humans, almost like humanoids. So probably like Nordic aliens or something. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they would call my name and, uh, I don't know, my memory would fade mm -hmm. at that point. And after that, I would only have brief flashes of being levitated out from the balcony over the courtyard. I was like four, I think it was five stories up above the ground, uh, floating through the air. This is daytime into the ship, you know, into this like bright light. And then after that, my, my memory would fade out. So oh. I had that quite a number of times as a kid, um, and I was telling my parents and my grandma all about these so-called Steine mention, or the Graue mention, which means stone men or gray men at the time. And I asked them about it, and they, they verified that, yeah, you were talking about that all the time back then. So, you know, it, w it wasn't like when these memories started coming back when I was 12, uh, it wasn't like it was because I was reading the abduction books that my mind just made it up because I asked my parents, my grandma about it, and they said, yeah. So that, that was pretty much the nature of it. And since that time, I've had other ones, but... The problem is, as you get older, your mind starts to crystallize and become less plastic. And so it's, so it's easier for abduction experiences to become kind of compartmentalized away. And so in my regular waking mind uh, consciousness, I don't really remember them too much. I only have the after effects, like, you know, bruises and head feeling weird, uh, slight post-traumatic post -traumatic stress disorder type symptoms afterwards. Yeah, but um, it's not like the, like I said, it's not my identity. It's not my main part of my life. It's just something that I deal with. And I uh, try to make the best of it by learning from it and then teaching others about it, amongst other subjects. But it, at the same time, it, it's, uh, it's not your sole narrative, but it may be the thing that sort of set things in motion. To, Precisely. Yeah, put yes. you on the path that you're on. Um, usually or often, it seems like those kinds of experiences happen within families, like in different generations. Did When you were talking about that with your parents or your grandparents, did they say anything like, oh, yeah, I've had, or your uncle had these experiences? Did they, did anything pop up for them? Definitely. My mom, she was the one that I got it from. Because my dad, he, he, my dad was interested in um, parapsychology, but he, he didn't have any experiences of his own, as far as I know. I mean, he had one ghost encounter, but that was mainly it. Um, so in my case, it was my mom and she's from Singapore. So her, both her parents are from China, you know, so I'm, I'm half Chinese or half Singaporean, I guess. Um, and I'm half German. 
Uh, and she had different strange encounters too when she lived in Singapore. So she got it, and she's psychic. Her mom is a, sh- uh, well, her her mom was a, was a shaman essentially. Oh wow! She could see spirits, could um, heal people of their occult problems, and um, so it kind of goes back and beyond that. Our family tree kind of disappears. We don't know where it goes beyond that, but it definitely came from my grandma, my Asian grandma, and my my Asian mom, and then I got part of it. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think I I wonder sometimes I I had an experience that I really can't explain when I was probably four-ish years old and I wonder if that sort of set me on the path of being interested in all this stuff I remember and I've said it before on the podcast but I was sometimes during the summers I would go and stay with my grandparents or my grandma and my step-grandpa for maybe a week at a time and just we'd go to the fair that was nearby and happened during the summer and stuff like that and I would stay up late and watch Johnny Carson with them and um and I one one night I was uh, sitting on my grandma's lap watching TV, and there was a to the left, there was a doorway that was there was no door in it that went to another room, and then through there you could see another doorway that went to another bedroom that did have a door in it, and I remember hearing a noise, and I looked over to the left, and the door opened, which I thought was odd, and thought odd that my grandma wasn't really startled by this. And then some figures came into the room with flashlights and they were shining them around, including at me, shining them around the room. And uh, my, my grandma and my step-grandpa didn't even seem to notice. And I was like, Grandma, do, do you see the, the people in there with the flashlight? And she didn't seem to know what I was talking about. And then I don't remember anything after that. So I always wonder if that's what set me on my trajectory of like thinking that there's something below the surface going on that many people either don't choose to look at or they are just too freaked out to look at it. Right. I mean, usually it's the anomalies that get us to think outside the box. Yes. And unfortunately, a lot of people, they, they haven't had any anomalies. Or maybe they have, but they didn't pay attention to yes. it. Or they had, but they, but they forgot it. Exactly. Uh, and so what these anomalies prove is that the consensus picture of reality it's it's merely a suggestion. It's not the reality. It's just it's just what what the general agreement is of how things should be. But if you look closely at the edges, they're fuzzy. Yes, there are things that that don't fit. And so you can either stare at the center of the consensus reality and say, "Hey, that's all reality is," and ignore everything at the edges, or you can start looking at the edges. And some some people they grow up on the edges. Like in my case, I grew up on the edge because of my experiences, uh, and that's what got me curious about all these things. Uh, and, and some people, you know, maybe their life starts out normal, but they somehow do, they just get interested in it. And so they become paranormal researchers or some people become ghost hunters just for the thrill of it. Um, but one way or another, they get interested in these things. And I think that's that's the place to be because that is the, the thing, that is the segue to, to the next level of understanding yeah, of our reality. Absolutely. Beginning to sort of push the envelope and shine the flashlight in the dark corners and open the door to the next corridor that most people ignore. And Yeah, explore. and so it's interesting that your experience involved the flashlights mm-hmm. in the dark because that's kind of symbolic if you think about it. Absolutely, for sure, yeah. And, you know, I almost forget about that experience. I have to, like, something has to come up to remind me of it, and you talking about that reminded me of it because it's, I don't know why. It's like... Uh, it's easy to forget something, as you alluded to, that's so out of the ordinary. It's almost like, what compartment do you, <clears throat> excuse me, do you put it in? Uh, so then 
since maybe it's not an experience that one refers to often because it you know, things don't come up in day-to-day reality that would cause you to refer to that, then you almost sort of put it in the, you know, the addict of your mind and you mm-hmm. don't, you don't think about it too often, but then conversations like this happen and you go, yeah, that really weird thing did happen. What the hell was that all about? It's true. Cause like most days I'm not thinking about aliens. I'm not yeah. thinking about abductions. I'm just thinking about ordinary things. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. So what did, what, what have you come up with? I know that's a big question, but in your explorations of reality, there's a lot of talk about simulation theory, for instance, going on uh, right now. It has been for the past few years. And obviously you're, you wrote a book about Gnosis. Gnosticism seems to lend itself to things like simulation theory. Um, what, what are some findings that you came across in, in, during your research? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so initially, so back around 2002, that's when I really got into the idea that reality has a more of a, a matrix control system element to it. Mm-hmm. And what, what do I mean by that? Obviously, the term matrix comes from the matrix movies, the idea that people were living in a fake simulated reality, and that ultimately they were being fed on for their their energy. You know, In the movie, it was considered thermal energy combined with a form of fusion. Um, but that's just a metaphor for this reality here, where it seems to me that people are being fed upon um, in an occult manner on their so-called life force or emotional energies. And that energy, as we know, has many different terms to it. Um, Robert Monroe, in his books, uh, he was an astral travel researcher. He, had, he, he, he was shown um, sort of a, an astral psychic documentary, in a way, about the history of Earth, about what Earth is um, in, in a bigger scheme of things. And according to this particular picture that he was presented with, Earth was essentially an energy farm for hyperdimensional beings. And what they did was they engineered life from the earliest microscopic organism up through plants and animals and dinosaurs, um, eventually to humans. And according to this picture, humans were the most efficient form of energy production that they've ever come up with. Uh, And that was due to our capacity for love, for uh, fear, for suffering. You know, psychological suffering, that's not something that lower animals have necessarily. I mean, their, their existence is more law of the jungle, more physical pain and things like that, and fear. Um, but we, we have additional psychological forms of suffering, and that produces a more exquisite form of this energy, which in the story was called Lush, uh, L-O-O-S-H. So if you ever hear the term Lush online, that's where it comes from. It comes from Robert Monroe's books. Um, and so it was right around 2002 that I started realizing this. And that's and the only reason I came upon that subject is because my, my stepfather, uh, he, was, um, he wasn't a good guy necessarily. Uh, and so it got me to look into the subject of psychopaths and sociopaths. Um, so I really got into that subject at the time, and it led me to the idea that certain people seem to be missing something within them. Um, and little did I know, uh, the Gnostics already came up with that idea long, long ago when they classified people into three different groups. You know, they called them the psychics, the hylics, and the pneumatics. And um, one of them were people that were, they, they essentially were just... Um, they were very material-oriented. They didn't seem to have anything higher within them, and they really had no free will to choose to be good. You know, they simply were what they were, just like the animals, just like the animals of the forest are, or what they are. It's just their natural state. Uh, you know, we don't really blame a shark for being evil. It just is what it is, right? And so, same with these people. And then the people in the middle, they were ones who they weren't perfect yet. They didn't really have uh, an activated, awakened, higher spark, but they had, but they had potential for it. So they're kind of like sitting on the fence, 50-50, and I think that's most of the population. 
And then they had the, uh, the highest category, which were people who had a truly active God spark within them. And, and these were what the Gnostics were trying to become more like. You know, they're, they're, or actually, they, some of them consider themselves to be that already. You know? uh, and so even back then, they were already classifying the population into you know, the low, middle, and the high. And I did that on my own during this research, looking into sociopaths and how they lacked any semblance of conscience. And they cannot be re uh, rehabilitated. Now, of course, you know, there are edge cases, people who are considered psychopaths, maybe because they have some sort of brain disorder. Like there's this famous guy, he's a, he became a medical doctor. Um, medically, he's a psychopath, but because he had lots of love and support, he ended up becoming self-aware about it and, you know, be, you know put it to good use. So he, now he's able to do surgeries without being squeamish about it or, you know, something like that. Um, those are edge cases, but the majority of sociopaths and psychopaths, like if you read uh, Harvey, I think that's the name, Harvey... Cleckley's book, Mask of Sanity, he has different case studies in there of working with psychopaths or sociopaths and trying to rehabilitate them. And over and over and over again, it shows that they are, they're, they're almost like, they're almost like, uh, like computer NPCs in a way. And that any change that you think is improving in them, it's all an act. And it can be proven to be just an act. And they always revert to their baseline behavior. Like there's no rehabilitating them. So, you know, that's what kind of got me thinking that, okay, well, maybe some people are missing something. And uh, because of that, they would be extremely um, useful to a kind of matrix control system. It's just like, you know, like, like nowadays, we have these massive online multiplayer games. And in these games, you have to have, well, most of the time, you do have to have these NPC, these non-playable characters, uh, making up right around 90% of the game population. And what that allows um, the game programmers to do is to steer the narrative of the game, right? So they can control these so-called NPCs, and then therefore the 10% who are the real players, they have to go along with it. Because you know, otherwise the real players could kind of, you know, uh, mess things up yes. if they coordinate together, you know, do these, uh -huh. these, these splash mob things. You know, they can, it can break the game. They can break the immersion of it, yes. right? So, so that, that's, you know, that's sort of what got me into the subject nowadays. But um, currently my theory, because um, you mentioned simulation theory, my theory is that if you consider, for example, how people can have synchronicities, we can have synchronicities, right? You can be out driving and you can have multiple synchronicities at the same time, uh, a meaningful message on a license plate while a truck passes by with a sign on it that relates to that exact same topic relating to what you're thinking about earlier that day, right? And then, and then someone can call you or can maybe text you on the phone and ask you a question and it relates to that exact topic. You, and now in terms of probability, for all that to happen at the same time is very, very low, you know? So it's not just confirmation bias where, oh, I just happen to be thinking about things, so therefore I'm looking around for it and therefore spotting it where it already exists. That, that's just this is confirmation bias. No, this is more like true improbability. Um, and if you get those enough in life, you start realizing, well, wait a minute, how is this even physically possible that we can get synchronicities in the first place? Because a synchronicity should not be possible by the laws of standard physics, by, by mainstream consensus reality. The mainstream consensus is that we live in a mechanical universe that has, it doesn't have a, an intelligence. Yes. It, it's, it's just a machine. Random. You know, it's just a, yeah, just billiard balls colliding, yes. you know, according to quantum laws. Mm -hmm. And that, that's all there is to it. And, uh, and any sort of um, unpredictability about it, about it is simply due to the chaotic nature of reality. You know, any, any complex system, if it's too complex for you to calculate, it's going to appear unpredictable. You know, but, but, but in the back of your mind, these scientists are still thinking, oh, well, okay, we can't predict it now, but somewhere in there, there's like mechanisms and if we can just figure it out that we can predict everything. That used to be the viewpoint of physics until quantum physics came along. And uh, quantum physics 
with like the Bell's inequality uh, or the Bell's test, they they proved mathematically that you cannot have what they call hidden variables in reality beneath the quantum level. And what hidden variables are, those are like the hidden mechanisms that one day you can figure them out and therefore be able to predict everything. Um, they proved mathematically that those things don't exist and that reality at the quantum level is truly, truly non-deterministic, meaning unpredictable. And you can, you can, you can make statistical predictions like there's a you know, 80% probability it's going to do this, but you can't say that electron will do exactly that in the next moment. You just can't predict it. It's, it's unpredictable. Um, and so when it comes to synchronicities, I realized, well, there has to be another intelligence that is able to override the laws of physics and to create these improbabilities. And in order for it to happen, like, for example, you might have a synchronicity where the only way that it can happen, like those things can come together, is if someone, you know, three weeks ago made a certain decision to do this and which led to that, which led to that, which led to the synchronicity. And so, so reality is responding to you in the present to maybe something you thought earlier or some decision you're making now by a synchronicity that could have only have begun three weeks ago or three years ago. Or heck, if, if you look into like, a, like an old book from like 1905 and one paragraph is incredibly synchronistic, like it's amazing how synchronistic it is. Well, what if, what if reality can alter the past? What if the past is mutable? You know, what if, what if it's not fully in place as we think it is? And uh, you might think, well, that's crazy, except that quantum physics allows that. It allows the past to be selected from the present. You know, like like linear linear time in quantum physics isn't, it's not like what we think of time as only one direction. It actually flows in, in both directions. And so it's interesting to me that a lot of these anomalous experiences that we have, they seem to be macroscopic versions of quantum weirdness, of quantum phenomena. And, uh, you know, me knowing quantum physics from college and my studies since then, um, I can see that, you know, I can see how it totally relates. Uh, and so, you know, just, just to sum, summarize what, where I'm at right now, I think, I think reality is ultimately more of a collective dream, something that is being generated through mass consciousness, being coordinated together by um, a higher kind of mind, which acts like the central server of an online multiplayer game. And the ancients would call it the Demiurge, which is, you know, what my book is pretty much all about. It's, it's about this concept of this universal mind that fashions and projects reality as we know it. It's kind of like the mainframe of the Matrix, you could, you could say. Uh, I think reality is a collective dream in that sense. Um, but at the same time, there seems to be something artificial about it. Uh, probably something technological or a very powerful mind that locks part of this otherwise fluid collective dream reality into a more solid illusion that we find ourselves in. And so it's, it's almost as if we're in a dream that is being artificially um, held in place so that it seems real. So it, it functions real. It has laws of physics that you can, you can fire up a particle collider, you know, and, and generate particles and look at the traces and, and it fits calculations generally. Um, but that in itself could merely be the fiction of the narrative that we're in, you know, that could just be the the story behind it, uh, and, and so I think I think reality ultimately it's a it's a mix of simulation and collective dream. But I think fundamentally it's it's a collective dream. Which in other words, reality is fundamentally consciousness, which is everything that all the Eastern traditions, uh, quantum physics, both of them say the same thing: that reality is fundamentally consciousness. But once it is consciousness, what do you do with that? Well, you know, you know, you know, and and we got people like Donald Hoffman um, talking about simulation theory and about how consciousness is when they get together and interact with each other, that interaction in itself automatically creates certain laws. And from that, you can sort of derive reality as we currently know it. Um, 
Yeah, so, so I do think that reality is fundamentally consciousness, but thought or one mind can influence another mind into um, experiencing things that are not simply the choices of that mind. Like, for example, when you, when you dream at night, your dreams are primarily your own. I mean, of course, according to occult theory, it's possible for other entities to kind of jack into your mind and appear in your dreams. But most of the time, your dreams are being generated by your own subconscious. But the thing is, what if I were psychic and I watched you while you were dreaming and I started taking control of your dream? And I said, okay, well, I'm going to construct a wall around you and, and I'm going to psychically force it to be immovable. So now you're in the dream, you're pushing on this wall, you can't move it because your mind isn't as strong as my mind. So I'm creating the illusion of physicality for you. And I'm thinking that perhaps there is something like a demiurge uh, that is doing that to all of us, to all life here within this realm, you know, whether it's, it doesn't matter if it's an animal, it doesn't matter if it's us, anything living is under the grip of something that is able to enforce the illusion of solidity. Um, and, and, and so it, it emulates physicality, but the problem is it's not perfect. And that's why we do get synchronicities. That why that's why we're able to um, manifest things through our focused intentions and visualizations. You know, if you if you wish for something strong enough, you start energizing the probability of it, and don't be surprised if it ends up coming true in your life. You know, over a longer long enough period of time, right? Uh, and and these things, well, along with like UFOs and uh, you know paranormal experiences, they all go to show that reality is fuzzy at the edges, and therefore, physicality is merely a suggestion and not a law. And uh, there's, there's something that normally enforces solidity, but it's not there all the time. So that's sort of my, that's, that's the picture that I'm at after about 20 to 30 years of research. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it seems like the, <clears throat> the term simulation theory itself, simulation, uh, would lead one to believe that um, some, there is a thing, there's an original thing or a series of things that is being simulated. It's being imitated. Uh, Whereas sometimes I think that whatever this matrix that we find ourselves in might be more a thing in and of itself. It's not trying to imitate anything. It's its own sort of sandbox in the sense that, of course, this coarse physical reality that we find ourselves in, that's the, that's the, I, I don't know, it's hard to find words to articulate it, but that is what people are calling the simulation, the fact that our whatever is guiding our avatars in this, in this reality or in this matrix is the real us. Um, and we are being led through this or not being led necessarily, but we are sort of, we find ourselves inside of this matrix that is course, the course physical world. And that is what we're calling. That's sort of the thing that's easy to see as a trap. Does mm -hmm. that make any sense? Definitely. Right. It, it does because, the thing about the thing about a simulation, as you said, is um, typically a simulation, by definition, is simulating something else that is real, right? And so, I guess um, a better term, like that book, Simu "Simulator and Simulation," which was featured in the Matrix, like Neo took it, it was on his bookshelf. That book it talks about uh, um, a simulacrum is a copy without an original. Now, how is that even possible? Well, it's possible if. Um, it's possible if you're under the illusion of the copy and, and you believe that there's an original. As long as you believe that there's an original, that there's a possibility of there being an original, then the copy is, is a, you know, you think it's a simulation, but really it's a simulacrum because the original is a lie. There's no original. Um, now, our reality here, if, if you look at um, either whether like astral body 
experiences, like um, out-of-body experiences, astral projection. If you look at afterlife things, um, even even aliens and where they go when they disappear, you know, because they're not constantly visible, so they, they disappear into another realm, another dimension. There's clearly some sort of a backstage reality that is bigger and more expansive than ours here. And I think this kind of ties back into what I mentioned just now about the collective dream idea, which is that if you start with the idea of a collective dream, because it's consciousness, it's going to be way more responsive to consciousness and way more fluid than what we have here right now, right? So our reality is almost like a subset within this bigger thing. And for that reason, um, it's, it's strange, you know? It seems to me that, that we're, we're definitely in a... It's almost like we're, we're the ice compared to the water, you know? So we have an ice cube floating in water, and they're both made of the same stuff. It's just a different state of it. You know, our, our reality is more frozen. And I think in, in just as ice can blend into water, uh, we, can, we can blend, you know, our reality can blend into the, the greater collective dream, and that's when reality starts getting weird. That's when you start getting synchronicities and paranormal phenomena and so on. Um, I think, I think it's, it's all part of the same continuum. Um, it's just that we're in a more restrictive part of it. Uh, and so our reality here, I don't know if you want to call this, a, it's not like so much a copy of the greater, but it's like a, a quarantined, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like when a computer has malware and has to, you have to quarantine a part of the operating system. It's like, it's almost like we're in a quarantined thing where we're like in safe mode, you know, we're like more restricted compared to the, to what it normally should be. Um, and maybe, maybe there's a purpose behind it. Maybe it's, um, benevolent maybe there's a reason for it maybe it's malevolent maybe it's like a, like the matrix where they're just simply feeding on us but i mean honestly i think it's a mix of both uh, i think it's possible for it to be both and a lot of the gnostic myths they get into they get into that you know they get into the idea that we do live in a fallen reality and it was due to uh, a metaphysical error that happened long ago that that produced reality as we know it but um yeah, I mean that's that's it's it's an interesting topic to think about. It is for sure, and it seems like there is lots of different ways of looking at it. It could be a loose harvesting um, racket. It could be an experiment. It could be a prison. There's been people that have described it all these different ways. Really, it could be all of those, like you said, because maybe something set this situation up initially that where we're in this sort of limited <clears throat> fishbowl. And so then other forces or other entities have come in and sort of taken advantage of that situation and used it to harvest luge or to uh, send people or entities from their reality here as punishment or, you know, it seems like the way that you're saying it is, is I like that because I think that's the answer to most of these complex topics that we discuss is that it's a little bit of everything. Yeah, saying it's this way or that way, it seems too limiting. Mm -hmm. uh, and it does seem unrealistic because if you just look around in life, it's hardly ever black or white. There's lots of different things going on. So, yeah, very interesting things to contemplate. Yeah, yeah. Um, quick question, is my, is my video um, lagging or is it looking weird or anything? It goes back and forth. It lags, but just very slightly, not, not okay. anything too distracting at all. Okay, good. Just let me know if, if it's a problem because okay. my computer seems to be running kind of hot. But okay, yeah. Cool. All right, cool. All right, your 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 uh, micro simulation is. <laughs> 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 I don't even know what, what what I'm trying to say with that. Um, 
Okay, so yeah, the simulation imitating something, perhaps it's something completely in and of itself. So, okay, let's bring in, in uh, gnosis and Gnosticism uh, and Demiurge. I, I am used to what I've studied, the little I've studied of Gnosticism. Um, I've come to know the Demiurge is sort of the, the imposter god, the god that uh, many Christians uh, have been looking to, thinking that they, it was the ultimate source, the, the creator. And really, it's sort of a trickster god that's getting in uh, and, and, and fooling people into thinking that it's the god, capital G. Uh, and, but it has much more uh, of a sort of malevolent motivation it, to trick uh, the people who are looking up to it into thinking that reality is much different than it actually is. But you have a slightly different take on it in your book. What, what, how, what is the demiurge in your mind? So the problem that I confronted is that we had people like Plato, for example, who saw the demiurge as good. There was a whole school of Greek philosophy that saw the, the demiurge as, as essentially merely the, almost like the, the GPU or the CPU of reality. You know, it's simply what fashions reality. Because um, the idea is that uh, the, the infinite creator delegated the task of perpetuating or fashioning or projecting physical reality as we know it. It delegated that to a sub-entity, a, a demigod, a demiurge, um, in order to kind of take, take the burden off itself or off himself. Um, and, and so we have the, the sub-deity whose sole job was originally merely to, to provide this game space that we're all playing in. Okay. Now, we have the Gnostics who came shortly after that um, period of Greek history who saw the Demiurge instead as the demented creator of this evil reality with all of its suffering, you know, with, with all of its hardship. Um, they tried to explain evil as, as the, the product of, of a god that could not possibly be the real god, right? And so, and so they, they believed in two realities. They believed in this reality and they believed in the true reality beyond all this. You know, which I guess, from what I mentioned earlier, would be the greater part of this collective dream. Yes. And they also believed in a false god, which would be this demiurge, and the true god, which is the true infinite good creator, which you know, we all have a piece of it within us as the spirit within us, you know, our, our, our soul, our heart, you know, that we have that within us. But we also have within us the ego, the shadow, the id. And so it's interesting that it is simply like that phrase, as above, so below, as below, so above, as within, so without. And so we have within us uh, sort of a microcosm of the greater macrocosm, you know? And so just as we have shadow and light within us, just as we have a true self and a false self, likewise, within greater reality, there's also a true reality and a false reality and a true God, you could say, and a false God. Now, that's what the Gnostics believed. And meanwhile, Plato would have been like, no way, you know, you guys are being way too cynical about this demiurge. Like the demiurge is simply a part of creation. There's just nothing parasitic about it. Well, I thought about it, I did more research, and I realized, well, wait a minute, the Demiurge is such a grand concept that it's just like, uh, you, you might as well call it the psyche of the universe, or the subconscious of the universe. And just as our subconscious can have both the good part of it, like the inner child, um, the higher self kind of coming through the subconscious, um, but it can also have the ego and the shadow and the id. Likewise, the Demiurge can also be fragmented in that way too. So maybe, maybe originally the, the Demiurge was, you know, functioning as designed, which was to project and fashion reality. But 
for various reasons, and you know, the different Gnostic schools had different explanations about why that was. But uh, they they believe that something happened to corrupt a part of the demiurge, you know, just like corrupting a part of a hard drive or part of an operating system. Meaning that, therefore, the demiurge may have actually uh, two parts to it. A part that is still the original, that is still plugged into the higher infinite creator, and a part of it that has become corrupted and is now serving the interests of those impulses that corrupted it in the first place. Now, in my book, I, I theorize, and you know, just this is just a small section of it, I theorize that perhaps entities with free will, you know, whether it's ourselves or aliens or you know, some ancient primordial alien group on another civilization, using psychic powers and using special technology that they had that could interface with this demiurge and start manipulating the, the uh, source code of the matrix, they were the ones who corrupted it to begin with. And so a, a kind of um, corruption or uh, malware began spreading within this part of creation. And now that's the part that has some degree of control over the reality that we find ourselves within. And so then that would then line up with what the Gnostics felt, which is, which is that there's something, something higher in terms of power that has control over this reality that is malevolent or there's, there's something wrong with it. But at the same time, I believe that there's also another part that is still plugged into the original that is still good. And so that's why our lives and our reality seem to be a mix between darkness and light between benevolent and malevolent forces. You know, we're, we're, clearly, we're clearly involved in a kind of tug of war between different uh, spiritual polarities, our own lives, within us. Every, every single decision that we make, uh, unless it's something very mechanical, every decision that we make is between choosing it from the best place within us or within the, the standard programmed ego-based part within us. Um, and so, like, once again, that's a microcosm of the macrocosm. Um, and, and I think that in the greater reality, uh, the similar thing exists, that there's a, a kind of fractal intermixing between darkness and light, and it ripples down through all levels of scale within creation, from the highest spiritual realms, like, you know, other dimensions, to Earth as a whole, you know, with the different geopolitical forces that we have, to different alien factions competing with each other, um, and, and, you know, down even within, within us, within our own inner structure, and the, the sort of inner struggle that we have, you know, the moral decisions that we have to make. Yes. Um, so I think I think that picture definitely points to there being two principles at minimum. You know, the darkness and the light. And so therefore, I believe that the demiurge likewise would have two different parts of it. And so I disagree with both Plato, who said it's all good, and I disagree with the Gnostics, who said the demiurge is all bad. And that's why in my book I distinguish between the demiurge in a more general sense and what I call the corrupt demiurge, which is like the corrupted part of that that hard drive, that corrupted partition. Um, that seems to have, seems to be the the epicenter of uh, a network of um, evil, I guess that that has been manipulating human history for a very long time. Do you think that dualism is uh, something that's endemic to physical reality or this matrix that we live in, and that it's different outside of that, or do you think that 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 goes for all of the multifaceted reality that be even beyond where we're at right now? Well, I think dualism is more a form of functional dualism rather than essential dualism. And what I mean by that is uh, people who are like true dualists, they see that there's no relation or compatibility between the two different things that make up the, the dual principle. Um, but in my, in my opinion, there is a blending between the two. And it's only it only appears dual because that is, again, part of the, the narrative of this fiction that we're in. 
Um, now, as far as it manifesting within nature itself, it, it kind of does in an archetypal sense because we're really deal dealing with archetypes of darkness and light. And archetypes are fundamental principles that can express in different symbolic ways. You know, so everything, everything that we see is merely a symbol of an archetype. You know, and the archetypes are, you know, they're part of the platonic world of forms that we don't really see directly. We only see how they manifest here. But, but for example, I mean, um, within nature, right, you've got poisonous plants and then you've got lovely flowers. You have like nice animals and you've got predator animals like sharks and alligators. Uh, you know, different, same with like bacteria. Some are helpful to us and some are, are you know, they're quite toxic to us. Uh, and, and, and same with people, right? So people, some people are really good. Some are quite psychopathic and sociopathic. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it kind of goes all the way up. It doesn't matter if you look up in creation or down in creation. You know, even elements, like we need oxygen, nitrogen, right? But we don't need necessarily uranium within us. And if we ingested uranium, we ing if we ingest too much radiation, we fall apart, you know, yes. internally. Mm -hmm. Our DNA gets damaged. So I think, I think from the, the smallest element up to the highest um, you know, part of creation, we do see a functional kind of polarity or, or, or duality. Gotcha. That makes sense. That's a good point. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier aliens sort of dipping into this reality. Do you think that they are something, and maybe you could even say this for what we have termed our higher selves, are things that are outside of this matrix and they just sort of dip into do for some particular function or to do some particular deed and then dip back out? Or do you think that they're just not in our uh, relative vicinity within the matrix? Mm, I think it's both, actually. Uh, I think it depends on the particular entity. Because, for I mean, so for example, there's, there's a, a smooth continuum between where we are on the spectrum, like us humans being physical in 3D, uh, subject to linear time, and where these other beings are, which is to be able to ignore the laws of physics as we know them there's a smooth continuity and we know that because if we look at cases of i don't know like esoteric masters or people who could levitate or um people who, who train themselves psychically to become these these esoteric um, master practitioners of the psychic arts they're like halfway there to what aliens are already you know so you know there's in between and and between them and us there are other people that are just part of regular secret societies you know they're not super psychic but they they know certain psychic skills and they can pull off certain tricks and they're not subject to reality as much as we are right so there's a smooth continuum and i think uh, even even within the alien spectrum there's a continuum between the ones at the top who are essentially non-physical completely they're like energy forms or energy beings and then the ones near the bottom of it who look like us they're physical um you could probably have a baby with them you know i mean they're like genetically compatible um and, and, and they're the ones that are closest to us, but there's everything in between. But, the, but you know, time and time again, they're able to phase out from our reality, from our time, and go somewhere else, or some when else, right? Because some of them could be time travelers. They could be returning to a future, or they could be returning to an alternate timeline, or maybe for all we know, in some alternate past. You know, it's, it's all relative somewhat. Um, but if you look at it from the metaphysical point of view, they're merely exiting one dream and going to another dream, or you know they're going from one compartment of the psyche to another part. Um, but if you if you try to look at it from a physics perspective, then you have to explain it from the the tools and the words that we have. And the clo I mean I've looked, and the closest thing that we have in physics to being able to explain where these things go is that these things are able to change their so-called quantum phase, which is um, 
it's 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 how they're it's how the wave function which is like the cloud of probabilities that make up their their physical bodies it's how that is aligned or timed to the the current moment in time or this part of creation so when you change the phase you're you're really just changing your alignment between different parts of reality so like we're here they're normally here but they can change the phase to kind of lock phase with us and and then when they when they change it either psychically or technologically they're able to kind of disappear from where we are and go back to where they normally are um so i think that's what's going on on a, on a physics level but as i said physics is it's part of the fiction and so it's possible that these beings when they get to a certain level of development they're not even using technology or physics anymore they're simply using their minds they're simply using consciousness and operating at the level of the metaphysical laws that um, decide how the collective dream works um, as opposed to physics which only has to do with how this part of the collective dream works so did you do you think that and i'm just thinking of all this stuff as this coming up it's this is, these are things that are way i couldn't even have thought to put on my on my question list but do you think that matrix reality just we'll call it that to be simplistic and non-matrix reality which may, maybe would be something that isn't uh based in physicality are they can they be and do they operate superimposed upon one another can you be outside of the matrix yet be in the locale of where the matrix is fun functioning can those things happen simultaneously in a way right because uh when you're dreaming part of you is still outside the dream in the bed in the bedroom and but part of you is inside the dream environment um, and so I, I do believe that it's possible that a being that is outside here can project a part of its consciousness here um, okay and actually if, if you look at like a lot of well the footage of ufos that seems more plausible in some cases those things are able to change shape and they're able to appear and disappear and and you know move in impossible ways what that seems to suggest is that they are projections from another realm, another dimension, you could say. Um, and, and of course, dimension, it's an, it's an ill-defined term. I mean, of course, within physics and mathematics, the term dimension is very well-defined. It's simply a mathematical degree of freedom. It's like an axis, you know, X, Y, Z, T, and you can add other dimensions to it depending on, on what you need. Um, but usually when you and I, when we refer, refer to the term dimension, we simply mean another realm of existence, another world. That has a that has its own type of time, its own type of space, you know, its own its own laws, um, and and so the the difficulty that these beings have overcome is how to translate themselves between different realms, because we're, we're for for the most part we're here, you know, we're, we're stuck in in this realm, um, but they're able to kind of traverse different timelines, different times, um, and that's what makes them, I guess, uh, alien, and and that they're not. They're, they're not simply spacemen, you know, they're, sure. they're more, they're more interdimensional in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what do you think about psychedelics? Can they give us a glimpse of those, uh, realms that you're talking about that are extra matrix? Hmm. Yeah. Well, see, try to use the analogy. Um, I, I like to use this analogy. It's like the, the old time televisions that have the rabbit ears and they're tuning into different radio st or television stations. You, you kind of turn the knob and it switches you to a different frequency. Um, but the thing is you're limited in, in how many channels you can pick up, right? There might, there might be another frequency beyond that, which you're not picking up, but what if you kicked your TV hard enough or stuck a magnet to it or something, right? You know, so you screwed up it like it's electronics and now all of a sudden it's able to shift its frequencies into that other band that it wouldn't be able to pick up normally. 
And I think that's what psychedelics do on a, on a biochemical level. Uh, I think they, they mess with, well, they, they do mess with the, the, uh, the uh, neural uh, biochemical signaling pathway. And I, I looked into this, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how you can have a particular psychedelic affecting a certain neurotransmitter, but another psychedelic that also affects that neurotransmitter does it through a different pathway or does it in a slightly different way. And so you get different qualitative differences um, between those experiences. Um, so I, I do think that psychedelics are able to kind of um, hack or jam or um, like pick the lock of your mind so that you're able to access doors that you wouldn't normally be able to access. Now, the problem is when you kick a television hard enough, you're also going to get a scrambled picture. You're also going to get artifacts that aren't part of what you're picking up from, you know, the external environment, like the signals. They're like internally generated artifacts. And so when people take psychedelics, they're getting both an objective signal that is being broadcast to them from another realm, you know, or from a deeper part of their psyche, but they're also getting internal artifacts, internal, internal projections that are intermixing with that. Uh, and so a common mistake is to take your psychedelic experiences as objective, as given, you know, like what you see is what it is. And that's not necessarily the case because it's being colored, it's being distorted by your own subconscious issues, you know, subconscious projections and, and, and so on. Uh, and so therefore you do have to like be, be choosy about what part of it you, you interpret yeah, and yeah. how you interpret it. Uh -huh. You have to interpret it just like you would a dream. Like if you have a dream that you were, you were in a certain place meeting a certain person, that might just be symbolic, right? It's not necessarily literal. And the same thing with psychedelics. And the same thing actually also with um, uh, psychic powers. Like people who have the second sight ability to be able to see entities, to be able to see auras, uh, ghosts, yeah, those kinds of phenomena. When they're looking at it, what they're really seeing though is they're seeing an internal, uh, an internally generated visual representation of that energy. It's kind of like you're html browser rendering code okay so your web browser is rendering code in its own way the code comes at it looking like ones and zeros but it's interpreting it as html code and then rendering it as text and images and layout and so on well our mind does the same thing when we're dreaming when we're out of body when we're having psychic experiences um, we're all interpreting it through our own internal browser you could say right and so so whether you're psychic or whether you're having a psychedelic experience that browser and how it renders thing is going to color what you see. And it's not literal. It's like there is something there. Like, for example, if an entity comes in and your mind sees it, oh, it's a floating black snake with red eyes. You know, it's like a little minor demon or something. Another psychic could be in the same room, look at it and say, oh, it's a, it's a coral snake with, you know, glowing orange eyes, right? It's, they're both seeing a snake. They're both seeing something malevolent. It's represented as something, you know, kind of like a, like a minor malevolent, malevolent energy. Um, but they're seeing it in slightly different ways because it's like Chrome browser versus Firefox versus Safari. It's like different different forms of rendering of the same code fundamentally. So we just have to keep that in mind. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good it's a it's a take that I'd never heard quite before. So it's not like necessarily. I think we're used to um, being under the impression that psychedelics remove our filters. So we're seeing quote unquote reality without any filters. But what you're saying is that the fil there are filters, they're just different filters. And that maybe actually in some ways, those filters might be much more subjective than the other ones because you're in such a, a perturbed, vulnerable sort of state of, of mind. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Our, our filters are definitely colored by our emotions, our beliefs, our subconscious projections, and also our ability. Well, the, the qualitative properties of our essence color um, our ability to interface with the rest of reality. And now, now, of course, within physical reality, everyone can look at the same tree or the same cup or the same pencil, and we all see, we all, we all agree that it's exactly the same thing for the most part. But in life, interestingly enough, uh, despite us all seeing the same things in the present, we all attract different things differently depending on our subconscious projections. So for us, it's interesting that it's the future that is mutable, that is being altered by our beliefs and our, and our perceptions, whereas in dreams and psychic experiences and out-of-body experiences, it's what we're experiencing right now that is being colored by by our, you know, our internal filters. So I don't know, I don't know what the mechanism behind that is. Uh, seems to relate to time somehow, but um, I don't know. Just felt it worth noting. Yeah, definitely. I, I something that confuses me about all of this stuff when when concepts like um, time is not linear, everything is happening at the same time. When those things, those kinds of concepts are, I, I like the idea of that, but I have a hard time wrapping my mind around it. Um, and that things like retro causality, where you can affect the, fa the past just as much as you can affect the future from your superposition, uh, as far as quantum mechanics are concerned. I, I intellectually start to grasp that, but I can't viscerally grasp it. Is there any, how do you define that? A nonlinear time, how, how, how is it possible that everything is happening at the same time? Well, it's kind of like when you're doing a road trip or you're going through a city, mm -hmm. all the roads, meaning all your possible paths, they already exist right now in the True. present. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so if you're if you're going up above, looking down, you see the entire city, you see the map, you see all the roads you could possibly take. Um, but you're when you're on the ground in the car, you're you're the one who's moving through that. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, the problem is there's actually at least two different types of time. There's linear time, which is how we experience it, and then there's nonlinear time, which is, um, well, here let me let me back up. So, so linear linear time is what's demarcated by uh, ticks on a clock. Or yes. the vibrations of an atom, mm -hmm. so that that's what linear time is. Um, it's 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 like I said, incremented by a mechanical thing, like a physical thing. Whereas there's another kind of time, which I guess you could call conscious time, which is demarcated by uh, ticks of free will choices or experiences. So, for example, if if you were a, a time traveler, okay, if you were a time traveler and you had a wristwatch on you, this is just a metaphor, but if you had a wristwatch on you. Uh, you could go to the past, you could go to the future, you know, you can kind of jump around in time. And for you, your, your watch would smoothly, continuously go move forward. Like, like your, your continuity of consciousness would stream forward, uh, according from your perspective. But to everyone else, you're the one who's jumping crazy, like, like, like a madman, you know, around time. And so these other people are within linear time because it just goes in one direction at a steady pace. Well, for the most part, except for relativity, but yeah, at a, at a steady pace. And then, but then the time traveler is moving around. So the time traveler to them is under nonlinear time, because he or she is able to move around. You know, or the same thing with uh, with um, when reading a novel, for example, right? Everyone in the novel is moving forward at linear time, in, according to the plot. But you, the reader, can flip between pages. You know, you can go back to the beginning, go towards the end. Um, but to make that a more accurate metaphor, I guess it would have to be a choose your own adventure book. You know, so you're choosing, you're flipping between page numbers to to choose different outcomes. Um, but, but so, so that's the way I view nonlinear time. It's, it's a, it's a time that is 
more flexible in terms of more flexible in terms of its, its direction um, for an entity that is not locked into the one directional flow of time as we know it. But um, yeah, that's essentially what it is. Do you think that we uh, uh, perceive time as linear just to function in the reality that we've set up for ourselves? That's a deep question because it kind of gets into the, the purpose of this experience. I mean, for example, um, it's, it's known in occultism and from anecdotal data uh, of the afterlife and so on that when you're in a non-physical state, when you're outside of linear time, it is essentially impossible to use force to violate the free will of another being. So imagine if you try to harm someone, uh, it just can't happen because there's just no mechanism to convey force, to force another being to, to you know, sub subject to your will in that sense. Whereas here in physicality, if someone wants to har harm another person, they can totally do it because you know there's, there's energy, force, momentum, and so on. So if they pick up a hammer and swing it, it's going to hit the other person and they're going to get hurt. It can happen. Now, according to metaphysics, when you do that, when you violate another person, it generates karma. And, uh, you know, there's a whole debate about what karma is. But essentially, karma is only really possible within the, the fiction of linear time. Because linear time creates a separation between cause and effect. So you can create a violation now and experience the corrective effect of it later. Whereas if you're outside of linear time, there is no separation between past and future in that sense. <laughs> yeah. And so therefore your attempted violation gets immediately met with a counter opposite force and you're not able to do it. Yes. So it's, it's, it's kind of like um, pushing against an immovable wall, mm -hmm. right? If the wall is completely solid, the very moment you touch the wall, you're going to get a reaction force back. And the harder you push, the more it pushes back. So it's a barrier. And that's what entities experience outside of linear time. But if they want to experience, um, if they want to experience violation and karma, you have to go within linear time because it creates that that separation between cause and effect. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you can tell us first and foremost if you have anything new in the works and where people can find you and your stuff online. Uh, yeah, so right now I'm just working on, well, I'm working on different physics theories. Like I, I, do, I do my own ex experiments uh, trying to come up with a, with a, with a better method of reading and scanning the aura like life force energy like a life force energy detector type type device cool. and i know there's others out there but i want to have my own take on it so nice. i'm working on that and uh, if you want to find my stuff i've got uh, my website montalk.net m-o-n-t-a-l-k.net uh, i've got free books on there tons of articles and uh, also links to my social media where i post pretty regularly fantastic well we'll have all of those uh, links in the episode notes so Tom, thank you so, so much for, for coming by. The book is fantastic. I highly suggest everybody get it. There will be links on how to get it in the episode notes. And hopefully you will, uh, you will come back and speak with us more. And maybe when my wife is here too. Definitely. We'd love to meet her. Fantastic. Well, Tom, have a good rest of your day. And uh, I will let you know when this goes live, okay? All right. Thank you. All right. Take care, brother. Thanks so much for making it this far. If you've liked what you've heard and you are thus inspired to contribute to the well-being of the melt, there are a few easy ways to do that. The most tangible being financially, which can be achieved by clicking the Patreon or Locals link in the episode notes, and then you will be led through the process for starting your monthly subscription for a mere $5 a month. 
This will give you access to exclusive episodes, full-length episodes, and you can participate in our monthly Melt Meetups where we can congregate together as a community and often get a chance to talk with some of our guests more intimately. Another way to help out would be to go to wherever it is that you listen to the Melt and either leave a favorable review or rating. You can also spread the word via sharing and recommendations to friends and family, either in person or virtually. And lastly, if none of those options are readily available or appealing to you, simply send your positive thoughts and intentions. In an interconnected and quantumly entangled multiverse, these also go a long way. <laughs>